Now's a good opportunity to educate everyone again about just how important data, privacy, cybersecurity, all of these things are. Because humans will always make errors. That's just how we are and who we are. Think about hardware, software solutions. and me, where we interview industry thought leaders in governance, risk, and compliance on hot topics, industry-specific challenges, trends, and more to learn about your methods, solutions, and outlook in this space. Hi, this is Megan Fee with GRC and me. On today's episode, we sit down with Jason Wang, the Chief Risk Officer at Synergy Credit Union. He's also a Logigate customer. And today we talk about the 10 principles of privacy and how at Synergy, they're held accountable and the measures that they have in place. He also talks to us about the importance and the awareness of ESG, environmental social governance. And lastly, we talk about best practices to work with regulators. He'll share some tips and tricks. And now here's my conversation with Jason. Hello, Jason. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Megan. How are you? I'm really well. I hope you're well. We are looking forward to our conversation today because we are going to talk about a topic we haven't covered yet on the podcast, ESG. So I'd love to start our discussion off today with just understanding more about you and your journey through governance, risk, and compliance, and how it led you to your current role of Chief Risk Officer at Synergy Credit Union. So can you share with us a little bit about your background? Sure. After I got my MBA, I started my risk management career in the financial services industry. First, with a focus on credit risk and analytics, specifically using data science and modeling tools to predict loan delinquencies. That's, I think, one of my strengths, which is uh, pretty good with data and numbers. But gradually, as I progressed my career, I became exposed to other areas, including fraud, compliance, AML, governance, etc. I see myself as a builder, someone who's passionate about building something from the ground up. So I joined a few roles that actually required me to build things from the ground up. For example, I joined TransUnion Canada and built the research function for the Canadian business. I was the first research guy for their Canadian business. And then I joined a fintech and built the whole risk department. When I met Synergy Credit Union, which is my current role, they were looking to further build out and enhance the enterprise risk management function, or ERM for short, including business continuity, or BCP for short, and the disaster recovery framework, which includes a pandemic response framework. This work would be less data intensive, but would take me out of my comfort zone. But I embraced that, and that was my intention. I wanted to build out a all-around CRO profile. So I accepted the challenge. And by the way, that was July 2019, before anyone could foresee the COVID-19 pandemic. I accepted a job to build out a playbook. Oh, wow. In hindsight, of course, the timing was uh, coincidental. The timing was perfect. But I'm happy that the work we had got done before that point actually prepared the organization really well for COVID-19. I heard that you're the chair of the COVID-19 committee at Synergy. 
And so how do you think that the pandemic affected the way organizations should approach data privacy? So the COVID-19 committee is a management committee with Synergy, and I am the chair, and we have representatives from all over the the organization, including uh, representatives from IT, from marketing communications, from HR, from privacy compliance, which is my team, from operations, retail, etc. There are many, many ways, I would say, that this pandemic has changed how organizations approach data privacy, cybersecurity, employee privacy. But I think I will probably just talk about two areas that really stood out for me. First being employee privacy. If you are an organization that deals with thousands or millions of consumers, then you tend to think more about their privacy. But remember, employee privacy is also privacy. And there are sensitive issues related to COVID-19, for example, who is a close contact, who has tested positive, who's isolating at home, and uh, who's traveling, right, and who's vaccinated, that, which is a recent topic, then who should have this information? And how long should you keep this information? For what purpose? And then at what point would you destroy this information and completely remove them from your database because they don't serve any purpose anymore? And these are really sensitive topics. I think uh, organizations should really handle these topics well. And we had cases where our customers, by the way, we often refer to a credit union customer as member simply because of the ownership structure. And sometimes we even see customer as a kind of a taboo word. So Throughout this conversation, if you hear me saying member, then just remember I'm referring to a consumer, a customer who's walking into our door to do banking business with us. At times when for some of our smaller branches in small towns, work can get out really quickly that, oh, Synergy has employees who are close contact, isolating at home. We have members who walk into our door to say, oh, did you have COVID? or did so-and-so have COVID? We have to really, really be firm to say, sorry, we can't disclose that information to you. What we can do is to ensure a really safe and healthy environment for you to visit us and a healthy and safe environment for our own employees. So I think employee privacy would be the first area. Then the second area here is really how the pandemic has disrupted people in many, many ways, whether it's how they bank, how our employees work, people were really forced to take up and start to use new tools. So I think the first risk factor is the higher tendency of human errors. When you're using a tool that is new to you, sometimes maybe more complex than your level of understanding of technology, but you have to use it, then this is where human errors would occur. And then there's a likelihood of data and privacy incidents, even though that's not your intention. So let me give you a simple example. Before the pandemic, we were signing documents with members in the branch face-to-face. Now, because of the pandemic, we were emailing some documents out. Then when you start typing the email address of the recipient or the name of the recipient, of course, we know Outlook and some other tools, sometimes they want to help you. They automatically populate a recipient name thinking, yeah, I think that's who you want to email. But if you have a bunch of people in your contacts with similar names, same first names, different last names, this is where you may click on the wrong recipient. Fortunately, we had only 
uh, near misses, no real incidents, but that became a real issue. So I think the positive that came out of that, and this is part of the work of the COVID-19 committee would be, hey, the silver lining of this would be, now's a good opportunity to educate everyone again, to raise the awareness about just how important data, privacy, cybersecurity, all of these things are. And by the way, maybe the organization should look into investing more in some of the non-human solutions because humans will always make errors. That's just how we are and who we are. Think about hardware, software solutions. So I think when we talk about the positives that came out of this pandemic, that's one of the positives. I appreciate you sharing that because I think a lot of the listeners, they might have been at a place where their business is run and a lot of their processes are run on Excel spreadsheets or in manual ways. And I think you're you're resonating with, I know, a lot of the audience that knows that there's going to be errors with those, those processes just because it is so heavily dependent on the human aspect. Now, tell me about how are you ensuring that you're getting the information that you need from your members, but still protecting their data? How does that look today? Transparency procedures, these are really important. And we understand that loyalty from the customers and from our member base is hard to get and easy to lose. Once you have done something and they don't trust you anymore, it's probably going to take a lot for you to regain that trust. But to start with, I think transparency is key. Thanks to the Canadian regulations, sometimes the Canadian regulators have the reputation of being maybe too tight. And I would say, Sometimes that's a good thing when it comes to privacy, for example. The federal level privacy regulations has been here for more than a decade. And it's in plain text, really just 10 principles. And the 10 principles speak to, for example, disclosure. So you have to tell people, you want this piece of data, why? And what are are you going to use that information for? So disclose the purpose and get consent. So they have to give you consent for you to get that. And then you have to promise to safeguard that information. And you have to give all your members the right to access. So our members can write a request to us, say, I need to know whatever information you have about me. um, And you have 30 days to do that. And uh, when they get that information package and they realize that something is not correct, then they can request that to be corrected. And if they are just not happy with how we handle the the privacy part, then they can write a letter to the federal level of the privacy commissioner, and then they will start an investigation on the business. So of course, that doesn't really happen a lot. It rarely happens, but that mechanism is there. And this has been here for many years under the, what we call PIPEDA, which is six letters, P-I-P-E-D-A, Personal Information Protection and Electronic Documents Act. That's the the whole act. Really just 10 simple principles. Consumers are pretty educated. They know about this. And uh, they sometimes refer to the website that lists the 10 principles really easily. So for us, then we are held accountable to this very high standard of protecting our members' privacy. So we have a lot of procedures that we have to stick to. We have our IT team who's doing cybersecurity checks on everyone sometimes, doing phishing email tests. So they would send out a 
mock phishing email just to see who clicks on it and then have a little chat with uh, those employees. And we have our internal audit who's always behind everyone asking the right questions. So it's really an organizational effort to protect everyone's privacy. And uh, there's a view that says, well, you know, it's your job. It's risk management's job. I would say in a way, everyone is a risk manager in the organization. So you can't really say it's, you know, so-and-so's job, it's not my job. I don't care. If I make a mistake, it leaves my hands. We'll let Jason's team come in and do the work. That's not the right uh, way to look at it. So everyone is collaborating and everyone is a risk manager. That's often easier said than done. I think you've done a really good job of kind of creating that culture of risk awareness within the organization because it isn't so intuitive, I think, for all lines of the business. So it does take a lot of work from you and your team, right, to help people along that journey and to be mindful of that ownership, that shared ownership that you speak of. Now, we talked about this just a moment ago, but one of the additional things that I've been hearing in the market is this concept of environmental social governance, or ESG as the acronym. So for our listeners who are maybe less familiar with ESG, can you explain, Jason, for us why it's important in your perspective to the overall risk landscape? Sure. ESG is, to some people, really new, but it's really important. And it's the trend is moving fast. So I'll talk about why it's important. It's important on two levels, actually. One being how the organization's footprint impact the environment and the society and vice versa, what risks my organizations face due to the environmental governance and social issues. The technical term for this is double materiality, where you have the outward risk and the inward risk. But in plain English, the risk is not hard to understand. I can share some examples. First of all, we all live on this planet and we share the planet and probably for the in the in the foreseeable future, this is the only planet that we can live on. I know that there are some um, pioneers who are looking for a different uh, alternative, but uh, let's talk about the realistic future. I think we have to treasure and protect this planet. And I stay pretty close to the research and the science in this front, particularly when we talk about climate risk. It is a real risk where if our global average temperature raises by another uh, 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius in the next uh, several decades. It's going to be disastrous in many ways. So the ice in the Arctic area will melt and that will raise the sea levels. Climate change will be more extreme. And I think we already see there's not a short list of things that are happening these days around us where you have the wildfires, you have the flood and uh, you have tornadoes and you have all of these things happening at the same time. So when these things are happening, it really, really threatens humanity, the whole world. And we're all part of it. So we have to do our part in protecting our, our planet. And that's the outward risk. So then the inward risk will be, well, let's think about when the climate change is really material and it's happening, how it actually impacts the specific risks for a financial institution that's caused by ESG issues. Simply put, you know, if you have mortgages for properties that are located in the flooding zone or in an area that is vulnerable to wildfires, 
of course, this is going to increase your losses, right? So that's real money we're talking about. And how do you then now evaluate the property values and your loan losses? And it's, it is a real issue. Or if we talk about commercial properties, if you have loans for commercial properties that may become obsolete or have to invest heavily in new technology to stay in business under the new ESG rules, because we know a lot of countries are now pledging to become net zero in 2050 or 2060, more countries in 2050, these governments are going to start to come up with regulations to ask the organizations, mostly businesses, to comply with that. Either you comply or you buy the carbon quota for someone to be compliant. And that, again, is a real financial impact. This means that, again, you know, we're talking about financial losses for organizations. So these are some simple, real examples to think about. And people think about 2050 or 2060 as, oh, you know, that is decades away. It's really far away from us. But uh, things are moving fast. And uh, last year, we could say, yeah, it's exactly 30 years away. And now we have to say it's 29 years away. And this is just the reality. So I think uh, there's a sense of urgency. But if you don't stay close to some of these uh, research then and some of the advocates, then you're not really familiar with these facts. And these are all facts. So the misconception in the world will be, oh, you know, the ESG thing is just... It's going to be the thing for this year, or it's going to be the thing for the early part of the 2020s, and it's going to pass. It's not real, or it's a fancy term, so organizations are just jumping on the bandwagon to sound good to their investors. That's not why they do this. There's a real reason why they're doing this. Tell us a little bit about any best practices that you might share with our listeners about how to work with regulators in a highly regulated environment the regulations we know today, but then also just being mindful to to work well and in partnership with them in the future. Sure. Everyone's favorite topic, regulations and regulators. Yes. We mentioned earlier that the Canadian banking industry is really heavily regulated. For example, all the banks and credit unions and financial organizations are required to have a pretty high capital ratio, which is really just the cash reserve that's sitting there that you're not investing. So, of course, people ask the question of why is it necessary? But I think it's there for a good reason and not so recent, but one of the major financial crimes of crisis of 2008 and 2009, not a single Canadian bank failed for capital reasons. And we know that many American banks failed. So Canadian banks have failed for other reasons, but not for capital reasons. So tight regulation is not always a bad thing. But it does sometimes make uh, us feel like, oh, our hands are tied and we can't do this. We can't do that. So it's hard to remain competitive and innovate. So how do you do it? Well, first of all, advocacy and a voice from the industry is key. The regulators sometimes are influenced by maybe just a small number of complaints from consumers about a particular practice. Or sometimes the media will pay more attention to bad news. We know that's because that grabs more eyeballs and attention. So when there's an incident, for example, one of the credit card issuers had a large scale data breach a few years back, but it was really not because they did not have good data privacy protection practices. It was a third party employee, or we can say uh, in our industry jargon, a rogue employee 
that started to steal information and, and sell information. So it's an employee conduct issue and it's a third party risk issue. But of course, the regulators will look at organizations and say, we need you to show us how you're protecting everyone's privacy. So the industry needs to have a voice and have a good dialogue with the regulators and let the regulators understand sometimes that an incident is not truly representative of a systematic issue. Is it, or is it a one-time small probability occurrence? And secondly, there's a term that we, we use here, which is right-sized regulations. Again, it speaks to, yes, under the same principles and intentions, how is it going to be actually implemented for different organizations? The regulators should give organizations a fair amount of flexibility and leeway for the actual how you do it. And I'll talk about the credit union system in Canada. There's more than 270 credit unions in the country outside of the, the province of Quebec because the system there is different. Now, did you know that all of these 270 plus credit unions added, the asset size is still just a fraction of the biggest Canadian bank, the Royal Bank of Canada. Wow. So if you yeah. do a pie chart, the shape is going to really amaze you. So their risk and compliance team, if we look at the, the biggest five banks of Canada, their risk team itself is probably bigger than the entire Synergy Credit Union team. And they have resources. I have just five people on my team. So if the regulators become prescriptive and they want exactly these 10 things to be done and you have to prove and you have to follow this, then is it really fair and is it really productive to let my five people go through this where they have a large team bigger than our whole bank to do this. So I think the regulators should have principles and intentions that are really clear and then be less prescriptive and dial back in telling people how you exactly do that and let the organizations come to a conclusion and a decision of how they should do this. And we have had some successes with right-sized regulations, but I think there's a long way to go. Internally within the organization, and we touched a little on this earlier, the three lines of defense concept when it comes to risk is also important. So the three lines of defense really speaks to everyone in the front line being the first line, and risk management is the second line of defense, and internal audit is the third line of defense. So just by telling people that this is how it's actually structured, makes people feel included in risk and compliance and uh, risk prevention, fraud prevention, everyone is a part of it. So uh, when we have team meetings, I often tell people, remember, everyone is a risk manager. I won't pay you a salary to do, to do this, but uh, it's your responsibility and everyone is uh, accountable. So I think the internal continued education and awareness efforts are also a big part of it. I think that's so important to to get the support and the communication, the transparency across the organization and not just once a year, but frequently, as you're saying, you're meeting together frequently. And, and I also like what you just shared about that right size approach, because one size doesn't fit all, right? And it is a big task to just take the rule books and the text and have to think about what does matter to me and my products and services. It's It can be a lot. And like you said, for lean teams, where do you spend your time and your energy? So 
Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think that's really meaningful for us. And I know others can take away from that. So lastly, I have a fun question for you. Okay. Now we talked about our beautiful planet and protecting our planet, right? And being mindful of it. So now talking about this planet, we hope that we'll get to a place where we can travel and see our beautiful planet. Where do you want to travel? What's, you know, when travel can become a thing again, you know, hopefully sooner than later, where do you want to go? What's on your list? That's a great question. So I would say right now I'm probably itching to get out there once my organization says it's fine for you to go. So thank you, Megan, for making me itching more. (laughs) (laughs) I know, me too. Right before the pandemic, we were planning, so my family and I were planning a few things. We were actually planning for another cruise vacation because I'm a cruise kind of person to just go to, uh, you know, one of those uh, really nice islands in the Caribbean area. We were also talking about maybe spending a week in Japan for the 2020 uh, Summer Olympics. So this was right before the pandemic, of course. And of course, uh, we know how uh, all of these have been uh, disrupted. But I think uh, my first travel destination would probably still be let the cruise ship take me to one of those, uh, you know, nice and quiet islands. And I know that the whole cruise industry has been really suffering financially. And some of these countries are heavily relying on tourism and they haven't had a lot of tourists in the past. So I'll do my part to, to help them. And Chicago is actually also on my list because I did live and uh, work in Chicago for a number of years. So sometimes I think of it as my second hometown. So oh, I'm also that. dying to come out to Chicago if uh, that becomes available. And I have a long list. I'm, uh, I'm really, uh, you know, hardcore traveler, I would say. So you can imagine when the lockdown has made me stay home for a year and three months, how hard that is on me. I hear you. We are the same. And I look at our suitcase in the closet. And I'm like, when can we use this? And we would love to have you in Chicago. We have, we might have an excuse for you to come in September. We're having agility, our user conference, bringing our, you know, colleagues and peers and GRC together for networking for those that are comfortable and feel able to do it. And then we, we also host it virtually for those that are just not ready yet. But yeah, regardless, we'd love to see you soon in Chicago. And, and I guess I have another fun question for you as well. Okay. A little birdie told me that you're really into baseball and you might have some MLB predictions. So tell us about this. Who can we be cheering for? Uh, Well, you are talking to someone from Toronto. So I'm going to have to put my money on the Toronto Blue Jays. Okay. They had a couple of really difficult years. Uh, We know that some good players left. Yes. But this year, it looks like they have really had a major rebound. And they finally got a good team together, which includes some of the most uh, promising stars like Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who just became the youngest All-Star Game MVP. So that's really amazing. (laughs) Yes. So he's he's carrying the team. And if you look at some of the home runs that he has got, it's really beautiful. So although uh, I think it's a little early to predict right now in the game who's going to be the champion, but I'll be cheering for the Blue Jays for sure. Yes. Well, now I have to watch. I have to watch a couple games now to see him in action. That's that's exciting. Do you know how young he is? In fact, how how old is he? 
I actually don't. I should look that up. I know his betting averages are 0.33. Uh, I think age is probably just one of the f- uh, numbers I forgot to check, but um, he's very young. That's fantastic. Well, thank you, Jason, so much for joining us today. This is a really enlightening conversation, and I know the listeners took away a lot of it. So thank you just sharing your experience with us today. It's my pleasure. We hope that Jason can join us at Agility, and we hope that you can too. To learn more, check it out at agility.logicgate.com. Thank you again for listening today. This is Megan Fee with GRC and Me.